People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is Stephen Kravitz. It's People of the Book, and we are going to be talking books. Um, and I was here in the studio earlier this morning uh, as a guest on The Morning Mayhem, and uh, Kathy was talking to me about the Hirsch Lions charity fundraising campaign which is in its last 57 minutes at the moment the goal is 3 million rand just to update everyone listening so far we've managed to raise 2.447 million rand so if you'd like to participate in this very exciting community project just go to charity.com forward slash hirsch lines and you can make your donation there and i'll update you because it finishes in 57 57 sec minutes uh during the course of the show uh, I had to steal myself away from the call room to get here in time for my book show. Now, on my way in, I was listening to the previous show, Masha uh, Lipska, and talking to Louise Hager. And Louise Hager was talking about how her mother uh, lived with cancer and said it, in the bigger picture, it was a brocha, it was a blessing. Uh, look for, looking forward to the next few weeks. Next week, I have Lauren Siegel in the studio to talk about her new book, Cancer, A Love Story. Also, a similar approach towards living with what for many people could be the kiss of death. So that's next week on the show, Lauren Siegel talking about cancer. And it's a very strange title for a book, Cancer, A Love Story. And then we also have another guest in next week talking about uh, a, a horse called Zulu. And uh, I mentioned the book briefly last week called Riding Wild. Basically, what happened is a horse that had a very interesting life story until the moment he became a, a, a stable horse in the Limpopo Valley on the Botswana side, uh, was in the stables at the same time that there was this the terrible terrible um the terrible hurricane and floods in the year 2000 you all remember the story about a woman giving birth to a baby on the top of a tree in Mozambique in the same storm these horses were let free to run away from the surging Limpopo river and after the flood most of the horses came back but one of them Zulu didn't and the big question was where was Zulu and it was thought that he was killed by a, a lion or carried away by the river years later they found Zulu was the chief stallion of a herd of wild zebra so the story about Zulu the African the the African horse who became the chief of the the zebras will be discussed as well because the author of the book will be in the studio next week to discuss the story of Zulu with us as well. And then looking forward to two weeks time, Professor Jonathan Janssen has written a book called As By Fire, The End of the South African University. It came out in of last year. It's published by um, Tafelberg, the same publishers as um, uh Jacques Poe's book, The President's Keepers. It is hard-hitting non-fiction. It is quite a, a bracing read, a big wake-up call for the 
future of academia in South Africa. So we'll have Jonathan Janssen in the studio in two weeks' time to talk about As by Fire. So you can see, looking for the best discussions around books, the best books to discuss live on the show here on Chai FM, People of the Book. And I'll be joining the studio a little bit later by Tracy Schwarzer from Jonathan Ball Publishers, who's also going to discuss a whole lot of books that uh, all their different publishers are bringing out between now and, I suppose, the end of March. And now for the books that I want to discuss this week. The first one is nonfiction. It's called The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. Well, that's the subtitle. The actual title is The Know-It-Alls. It's written by Noam Cohen, who used to work for the New York Times. He wrote a column called Link by Link, reporting on Wikipedia, Twitter, Bitcoin, ad blockers, and other disruptive technologies. He lives in Brooklyn with his family, and he has written a very, very interesting philosophical and cultural history of Silicon Valley. Now, that might sound quite pretentious and a little bit uh, academic, but it actually is a most valuable read. We are living in a world where technology is the greatest force force of for change for improvement for bettering our lives and also for destroying our jobs technology is a multifaceted hydra with good and bad but technology doesn't exist in a vacuum technology comes from companies that use ideas that bubbled up through government research departments through universities what is the story behind the development of technologies? What were the personalities and the beliefs of the people who were not so interested so much just in creating the companies that are changing our lives, but created the foundations upon which those companies are built? This is what Noam Cohen investigates in The Know-It-Alls. And what he does is he takes um, 10 10 people who have built the foundation and the structure of technology in the world today. Most of them revolve around San Francisco, Silicon Valley, that part of the world. And he shows how their beliefs, their philosophies, their personalities have contributed towards the whole technology an ecosystem that we have today and it is fascinating to see how philosophies and academic academic invest you know certain academic preferences in certain people which they manage to make into real atmospheres uh, and uh, breathing and living organisms in Silicon Valley have had such a huge impact on the entire world. So this is the know-it-alls. Straight after the ad break, I'm going to just talk a little bit more about some of the personalities who no one knows about them today. They've forgotten. But we're living in the world that is truly their legacy. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're looking at a book called The Know-It-Alls. It's a cultural and a philosophical history of the rise of Silicon Valley as, and this is the very critical part, a 
political powerhouse and a social wrecking ball. And I think if you listen to the show of the law over the last few weeks, months, you'll have realized that I'm, I'm actually very, I'm very, very interested in technology and the power of technology to change the world around us. We've spoken about Uber through the book Wild Ride. We looked at the Airbnb, the first Airbnb company biography, which was called Airbnb. We looked at a book called The Four. That's Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google by Scott Galloway. Also a very, very critical look at technology companies. And here this is the know-it-alls. As I said, a number of personalities are discussed showing how their beliefs actually built the world of Silicon Valley and of the internet-dominated technological environment that we all operate in. One of the people mentioned in the book is a man called Frederick Terman, and he's not a very well-known personality. But as the dean of Stanford University in the middle part of the 20th century, he took decisions that at the time seemed to be just local decisions for Stanford University. But in the sweep of time, he actually structured technology in the way that we have it today. And what did he do? When Stanford was a young university competing against the real fancy Ivy League universities on the East Coast, he decided an easy way or a, a good way for Stanford to make a lot of money is to commercialize the academic research that was happening in Stanford, giving professors in the universities incentives to start companies and the first success of that system was Hewlett Packard but after that many many people made that very easy Silicon Valley slide from academia to business and Silicon Valley grew up around this revolving door from academia to business that Frederick Terman set up he changed the way that the faculties in the university were structured, turning the classics and the humanities into the, the, the poorer stepsisters of the university and promoting business and technology and science and engineering within the faculties of the university, creating what could be very a very simple move from Stanford and Silicon Valley to at Google where people are encouraged to spend 20% of their time on non-work related projects. That's the same idea as giving professors a free door, a free pass to work on commercializing their research. So you see how the academic institution that is Stanford University created a certain environmental atmosphere and mood that became the air that Silicon Valley and San Francisco breathes. Another very interesting person in the book is Peter Till. He is the one person in the Silicon Valley uh, firmament and establishment who supported President Trump during the presidential campaign of 2016. And he is an uh, a, a very, very strong card-paying member of a specific political philosophy in America, libertarianism. It's not liberalism, it's libertarianism, which has a strong belief that government should stick, step away from the economy, from people's lives, 
gov- uh, businesses should be given much more free reign to make their decisions, to pursue their profit, the profit motive. And a lot of these very, very strong libertarian libertarians had their seminal moment of inspiration in reading the books of a- Ayn Rand, uh, the chief goddess of libertarianism in America. And when you see how these libertarian ideas underpin the application of technology in the real world, you see that technology is not a neutral idea. It's not a neutral commodity. It has been created with a very, very strong philosophical underpinning to break down barriers, to liberate people using technology from government control. Sometimes that doesn't always work but also with an absolute disregard for the current system. And that has huge implications for us because if a new technology will destroy millions of jobs, this philosophies will go for it. And you don't have to worry about those millions of jobs because that's, someone's else, that's someone else's problem. And that brings huge discussions in the chapter and the essays on Jeff Bezos because creating Amazon, he's really brought about the destruction of American retail and also the elimination of millions of jobs across America, not just in retail. And with his push to create drones that will deliver purchases to people's houses, you can also put millions of drivers, van drivers, or uh, people involved in logistics out of, out of a job. We're focusing on 10 seminal personalities. We're not giving biographies. Noam Cohen's not giving biographies in um, the know-it-alls. It's a small part of a person's life, but how that stage of their life contributed towards the philosophical and the political foundation which underpins all of technology today. It's a powerful book. I was actually very surprised because he's very, very critical of Google and Facebook and Amazon. I was surprised to see that Noam Cohen was invited to give a talk at Google. Google runs a, uh, an, uh, an app called Talks at Google. And there was Noam Cohen happily talking away to an audience of Googlers, uh, talking about his very, very, very critical book that's very critical of technology. Um, I'd say look it up on the internet, use Google, <laughs> search for Noam, Noam, Noam Cohen, um, the know-it-alls, and you can watch his talk at Google, t- talks at Google. But more important, read the book. It is a fascinating and a very, very accessible cultural and philosophical and political history of Silicon Valley through 10 seminal personalities who have contributed more than anyone else in creating the world around us. And it's important for us to know the world around us because we're operating in it. We need to know how we got to this point, and nothing's neutral. Everything is political. So what is the political underpinnings of the Internet? The next book that I'm going to talk about, I've mentioned it a few times in the show. I was looking forward to reading it, and I had absolute fantastic, fantastic time just reading this book. It's called The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. It's by Imogen Hermes Gower, and it's a debut novel. Imogen Hermes Gower studied archaeology, anthropology, and and art history before going on to work in museums. She began to write fiction inspired by the artifacts she worked with, and in 2013, she won the Malcolm Bradbury Memorial Scholarship to study for an MA in creative writing. 
The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock was a finalist in the Miss Lexia first novel competition, was shortlisted for the inaugural Deborah Rogers Foundation Writers Award. It is Penguin Random House is one of their divisions vintage. It's Vintage's lead debut for 2018. It is beautiful and it is an absolutely wonderful read. It's got a beautiful cover with open, you know, seashells open and beautiful um, title pages. The book is set in seven, the 1780s and it's very, very, very evocative of that era through the writing, through the idiom, through the um, speech of the different characters. And the story is at simultaneously beautiful and also tragic and we'll talk a little bit more about the mermaid and mrs hancock one of the one of the most beautiful reads i've had in a long time straight after this ad break people of the book on 101.9 high fm this is people of the book on 101.9 high fm I mentioned earlier that currently Hirsch Lions has a fundraising campaign called charity we're using the charity um platform and uh, just an update, there's 38 minutes left of the campaign. The goal is 3 million rand. Since the beginning of the show, they've moved from 2.2 million to 2.6 million rand collected. If you, don't want to be, if you want to be part of this, all you need to do, go to www.charity.com forward slash Hirsch Lions and you can donate right there very, very, very easily. I'm talking about the book called The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. Now, the story starts with a very, very beautiful but sad opening scene when Jonah Hancock, who is a an owner of ships, living in Deptford, which is just down the just down the road from London, in sep- September 1785, uh, his his wife died in childbirth um, many years before, about 20 years before, or f- 15 years before, and the child who also died in that birth, would have been 15 years old, is not alive in the book, but is a ghost presence in the book. And here Jonah Hancock is in his counting house, he's overseeing his business, and he feels the loss of his wife and his young son. And he almost imagines his son as a ghost in his house, and he hears footsteps around him and he turns around and he knows there's no one there because there's this gap in his life that was created when his son and his wife died he has a niece staying in the house helping him out in the running of his house and he's fretting so anxiously about a ship that went missing uh, he hasn't heard from a ship that went to the far east and he's his uh, his Waiting for some some word to come from the from the from the, the the captain of the ship, and eventually the captain of the ship comes to him in person, and says, "I sold the ship in order to buy a mermaid." And after Jonah Hancock's fury at such a stupid commercial transaction abates. And he meets, well, he sees the mermaid. It's a dead mermaid, tiny little thing that looks almost like a baby mermaid with a monkey face and a fish tail. He realizes that he can actually exhibit the mermaid in London. In the 1780s, London was a city like just like today that lived on the fascination and the excitement of the novel, the new and the exotic. 
and he starts exhibiting the mermaid in a coffee shop. And you get this whole beautiful feeling of London in the 1780s under King George with the coffee shops and the empire of trade, the businessmen meeting over coffee, reading the pamphlets and the newspapers that are in distribution and running off to all these exotic exhibitions. And his mermaid becomes an absolute hit in London, gaining the attention of a woman who runs a very, very high class, a very, very high class brothel. And she decides she wants to hire the mermaid for a week and put on a fabulous, exotic show about mermaids and have her girls dress up in mermaid costumes and dance and build up the reputation of her establishment. And he agrees to this. And at this establishment, he meets a, a lady who's in her 20, late 20s who's the most famous courtesan in London at the time and he falls in love with her and that's just the beginning of this very beautiful very sad in ways story of Miss the mermaid and Mrs. Hancock and there are more than one mermaids in the book and or someone does become Mrs. Hancock because the first Mrs. Hancock died in childbirth 15 years before the story is written but imagine Hermes Hermes Gower's ability to create atmosphere and there's some senses of such tragic longing in the book these emotions dark spells of melancholia it just comes out so beautifully in the book and we move across from Deptford outside of London to Greenwich we see beautiful mansions we see this petty fighting amongst the aristocracy and the new rich of London it's a beautiful beautiful story with the with two of the most beautiful tragic heartwarming characters at the very core of the book they are Mr Hancock and the courtesan who becomes a very 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 big part of his life and that's Angelica Neal. And it's such a beautiful book. I have put a request through to the publishers to get Imogen Hermes Gower in an interview. So let's hope that that comes off because it just is the most beautiful book. And I plan to get through four books today, but I only got through two because our guest is in the studio. The other two books I'll get to next week. I actually mentioned both of them as things I wanted to read, and I actually read them. So just to repeat their names, White Chrysanthemum by Mary Lynn Bracht. It's about Korea in the 20th century, comfort girls taken from Korea to work in the Japanese army, one of the terrible, terrible abuses of human rights during the Japanese war, Second World War in the Far East. The other one is Greg Hurwitz, Hellbent, an orphan ex novel. Greg Hurwitz is going to be in South Africa in May. So read the whole backlist. Orphan ex, the nowhere man, and they get Hellbent. You will have a roller coaster ride of thriller reading for the entire duration that you read these three books. That's the, the Greg Hurwitz book. And you can go meet him when he's in South Africa later on this year. Now, Tracy, welcome to the studio. It's so nice to have you join us again. And uh, I'm waiting with bated breath to hear about the titles that we're going to talk about. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me again for the first time this year. And I'm full of the joys because my boy has just returned from his first half term at boarding school. So, so yes, happy Friday and thank you for having me. Um, 
Actually, a lot of the books that I'm going to talk about today are books that I read in my son's first half term because I haven't been sleeping much. I've been up sobbing and reading. So, and I've been reading quite different books because my, my passion, as you know, is Wild. local books and history. I enjoy quite a lot of nonfiction, but these midnight hours call for different sort of books. And I have just read the most wonderful selection. I'm going to start with a debut novel, Murder Mystery, I suppose. And I just, I'll, I'll read you what Sophie Hannah, Sophie Hannah was out here last, last year for Kingsmead, I think, in Franchuk. And Sophie Hannah is rewriting, or she's writing new Poirots. She is writing the new Agatha Christie's. And she says of the first book that I'm going to speak about, this book blew my mind. It is utterly original and unique. I couldn't get it out of my head for days afterwards. And it really is something very special. It's called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. And it's written by Stuart Turton. As I said, debut novel published by Bloomsbury. Quite a tome. And it opens with a party invitation to Blackheath House. And we're, we're thinking sort of Gosford Park. We are thinking Downton Abbey. We're in that period of time. And guests are invited to an anniversary party at Blackheath House, which is in a state of slight disrepair, but the parts that the guests are going to be staying in have been given a new lick of paint and look very shiny. And in the course of this party, Evelyn Hardcastle, the daughter, the heiress, is murdered. You then spend the book like a like a Cluedo, I suppose, working out what happened to Evelyn Hardcastle. So you do have that Agatha Christie vibe. Um, but the fascinating structure of it is that the murder is told every day. The same day is told again by eight different characters. So if you think Cluedo, you have Mr. Plum narrating what he saw that night, or Professor Plum was he. Um, Colonel Mustard narrates their section of the story. And while this is actually happening, it is somebody living those days. One central man called Aidan Bishop who is living the day in Professor Plum's body, in the butler's body, in the guest's body. It is the most extraordinary Book. I'll give you some more detail. Can I carry yeah, on or yeah, do we yeah. need no, to? No, no. Okay, carry on. fabulous. I can carry on. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so you have at the same time that you're trying to find out what happens to Evelyn Hardcastle over the course of this weekend party, you have yourself the mystery of what on earth is going on here. How is Aidan Bishop waking up in a different body every day and why and how is he living the same 24-hour period again and again? There's the Groundhog Day theme as well. Exactly, exactly. I've, well, I've just, I've never read anything like it. And as Sophie Hannah says, it will stay with you. I thought about it for weeks afterwards and I was at, as much fascinated by Stuart Turton, the author's incredible connection to the timelines. I, he must have had whiteboards all over his office trying to get the timelines exact. It is the most extraordinary book and it is just wonderful and you will lose yourself in it. And 
uh, in terms of what I was saying earlier, a lot of the books that I've been reading are quite escapist at the moment. I've read a lot of heavy political books towards the end of last year, and you can feel a bit sort of weighted down by current affairs, by the weight of the world. So this was just the most extraordinary book that took me out of my world into the world of Downton Abbey, but with a dead body so in the like, fountain. We, in books, we all like saying, what's a combina- it's a combination of. So Downton Abbey, Agatha Christie, how, Groundhog Day, all mixed together. Maybe even a little bit of Inception, the movie, although don't let that put you off. <laughs> well, the movie was very good, so it actually is not a reason to be put off. So uh, there is a copy for you. Okay. It, it is an extraordinary read. And that's, I think that's actually coming out into bookstores this month, if it isn't there already. So do look out for The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. It is something quite special. And then the next one that I wanted to talk about is also a debut, also actually published by Bloomsbury under their new imprint, Raven Books, which is, I, want, I don't want to say horror imprint, although... That is essentially what it is. But don't think horror in the sense of Stephen King or James Herbert, is it? Think horror in sort of Susan Hill. Think horror um, almost even Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which this one reminded me quite a lot of. And it's called The Silent Companions, and it's written by Laura Purcell. And I avoid horror like the plague. I, I like to sleep normally. And I don't watch horror movies. I don't read scary books. And I wasn't actually quite sure what I was getting into when I picked this one up because it opens in 1866, I think it is. It's late, mid to late 1860s. And it opens in a psychiatric institution where a woman is locked into a cell on her own. She's mute. She hasn't spoken since she's been in there. She doesn't know exactly how long she's been in there. She's aware of the fact that she's been badly burnt. She's got scars on her arms. Her hair is, well, she's almost bald with a few little tufts. And she doesn't really remember why why she's there. But she hears whispers from the nurses in the corridors, whisperers saying murderous. A new doctor arrives who has new ideas about psychiatry. He doesn't want to dump her in a cold bath with ice blocks and give her electric shocks and lock her up. He he wants to hear her story because he believes he can cure her and the telling of or the writing of her story will free up her speech and they will be able to establish whether or not she is in fact a murderess, as is whispered. So he gives her a slate initially with a piece of chalk to write on, um, which graduates to a piece of paper and a pen. And she starts writing her story, which begins with her husband, new, newly married, deeply in love. Her husband dies suddenly in their country house that they are moving to. It's, it was his family's country house that they're going to move to and they're going to settle it. Um, She is heavily pregnant at the time that he dies, and in the sort of confusion of her bereavement, she decides she just is going to go to this country house anyhow without him. She will fix it up, and life will somehow go on because she is not dead, and she is carrying this baby. 
And as she arrives in the town, and it is, of course, because we are talking Rebecca-style gothic horror, it is a crumbling country mansion. The town itself is dark and misty and damp. And the villagers who sort of support the country house or the town that has grown up around it, the villagers in the town as she's coming through are sort of openly hostile towards her. And she's traveling with her late husband's cousin, who is a little bit strange, but uh, she is at least company. And they arrive at this house that is just, it's chaos. It is half of the rooms haven't been opened. They're cobwebs. It's it's in a state of disrepair. And she sets about trying to revamp the house so that it's ready for her child when her child is ready to be born. But strange things start happening. Things start going bump in the night. And the things that start going bump in the night are these things that were actually, historically, you can look them up on Google, they were called silent companions. They were sort of 1600s curiosities. They were paintings on board that stood up. They had sort of beveled edges. And yes, they, they, you know, they stood on the ground, but they were designed to look as though they'd stepped out of an oil painting on the wall. And you were supposed to get a terrible fright as you saw one as you walked into the dinner party, and then you'd have a wonderful giggle because the painting had come alive. So these silent companions feature in this novel, as well as a parallel story in the 1600s when they were first created. And it was something else. I finished it in a night because I was so terrified. Oh, hang on. I would say terrified. It's a sort of sense of creeping dread, like like the noises in the attic in Rebecca. Um, uh, that Jane Eyre. Um, it's... It's really something quite special, and it's not a book that I would normally pick up. And yes, you you might want to read it only in daylight hours, but Creeping Dread, wonderful debut novel, great historical detail moving between the 1600s and the Victorian era. Wonderful story. So that is Silent Companions. Have I got time for one more? Yay. Um, Then the next one, also novel, historical novel, based on the life of Caligula, the Roman emperor. And it's written by Simon Turney, who is a classical historian. So he comes with a background of knowing all of the dry details. But what he decided to do in this book, uh, and if you've ever read any of the Harry Sidebottoms or Con Eggledons, you'll really enjoy it. Um, what he decided to do was to take what we know of Caligula, this mad emperor who according to history, made his horse a senator. Um, how how would that have been in real life? How, how could that actually have played out? Because the people writing the histories are writing the histories of the victors, of the good guys. How would somebody, and you know, clearly Caligula wasn't a very good man, but how was he formed? How was he made by... Tiberius, who was emperor before him. And the book is narrated by Caligula's sister. It's wonderfully, wonderfully compelling and a real page-turner. This one I actually read on a sun lounger next to the pool um, while my children were sort of jumping around and we were throwing water balloons so that I was able to maintain the (laughs) storyline 
between jumps in the pool and catches of the balloon was something extraordinary. So I really loved Caligula. And it is underpinned by an historian's knowledge of the period. Really great read, Caligula by Simon Tony. And it's all the politics... The balance of power. Oh, absolutely. Very much so. And, you know, whether or not you want to, you can draw sort of parallels with modern leaders today. You you know, what would be told of our leaders in the world today in a thousand, two thousand years? For anyone who loved the Cicero trilogy by Robert Harris, this is the next thing to pick up. I only did. He did Pompeii as well, didn't he? I loved Pompeii. So this is similar in vain. Very so that is so. Caligula by Simon Turney. Indeed. And it's available? Um, that soon. one I think is coming in March, March or, yes, thereabouts. So a future release about an ancient historical story. We'll be back with more straight after this. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We've got Tracy Schwarzer in the studio from Jonathan Wall Books. Just before we go back again, I've been updating the Hirsch Lions charity campaign. There's 17 minutes and 56 seconds from now, and they're on 2.750 million. So they need another 250,000 rand in the next 17 minutes. If you want to take part, just go to charity.com. That's charity with a D, charity.com forward slash Hirsch Lines, and you can make a donation straight from that web page. And now we're back to books. Congratulations on the charity drive. Very exciting. Very exciting. You've got a... Yes, I have Amy Chua, who wrote Battle Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Yes, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother um, a couple of years ago. And Tiger Motherhood became a sort of... Tiger Mother became a buzzword as a result of the book. Amy's new book is now available. It's called Political Tribes. It's her first since... Battle him. What's interesting is when you think about her previous book, Battle Him, Mother's Motherhood, but she's a big academic in, Very much uh, so. in, in an Ivy League university. Absolutely. And I think her husband's also a writer, Jed Rubenstein. He okay. writes uh, historical um, detective thrillers. Oh my goodness, I'll have to look for those. Okay, thank you. Uh, so her new one is called Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. And it's quite heavily centered on America and American politics currently. But what the concept of the book is that democracy is shaking the world over. And part of the reason it's shaking is because we've become sort of blinded by big concepts, Democrat, Republican, um, liberal, conservative, and we've forgotten actually that as people, individuals, all we want to do is belong. We all have our tribes, and our tribes are much smaller than those huge, big ideas. They, you know, even even sort of athletes, monks, they, who live alone in cells on their own, they belong to a group and she feels that we are in the situation that we're in because we haven't looked closely enough or we haven't been aware enough of the fact that people just want to feel like they belong and 
that those political parties, those movements that give people a place of belonging, a small personal tribe, will be far more successful than those who necessarily discussing higher ideals. So it's a fascinating book. She's controversial as, you know, as, as she, she is. Be. <laughs> um, and as I say, it's quite American centric in terms of that is where she's writing from. That is her reality. But, you know, certainly the lessons from it, I think you could apply the world over. So do have a look out for it. She's she's a very interesting woman. So that's Amy Chu. Just to mention, and that's not on your list, but you also have another explosive political book that Jonathan Ball is distributing in South Africa, The Michael Wolf Fire and Fire Fury. Fury. Fire, somebody was actually, one of my colleagues was saying, I'm, I'm sort of I wasn't sure whether or not to arm wrestle for a copy, but a friend in the office was saying that they had actually listened to the audio book of it, and the audio book had been fascinating, and their their response to the audio book has renewed my interest in arm wrestling for one of the sample copies on the shelves. Um, so yes, and it uh, it's selling it's selling particularly well. So yeah, so do look out for Fire and Fury, and Fury yes. which is which is available and. Eye popping as you would imagine it to be. It's Michael Wolf's, if you don't know Michael Wolf's insider account of the Trump administration and campaign before then. Then um, I'm going to jump to a legal slash serial killer thriller that I also had to get through in a night. It's called 13, and it's written by a guy called Steve Kavanaugh. And Steve's one of those authors who are the publishers that we represent overseas. They sort of say, you know, he does so well in our territories, and he hasn't really taken off here in South Africa, and why is that? And, you know, because he's such a great writer. And I think there's a book that is going to launch Steve Kavanaugh in South Africa. It is going to be 13. It is a page-turner of note, and I'm not a great legal thriller reader. I haven't, you know, I, I haven't read a lot of the genre. But it is the story of a lawyer, a principled defense lawyer. Um, he, in fact, only represents clients who he believes are innocent. And he has a, a small sort of legal practice that doesn't generate a huge amount of income. And he gets himself into quite a lot of trouble. And he's pulled in by the the sort of biggest, flashiest legal outfit in New York who are defending this young pop star who's accused of murdering his girlfriend and his security guard. And they've got a very shiny, fancy defense team. They, the, uh, the pop star maintains his innocence throughout. And there is, so I'm not, I'm not spoiling the plot at all here. You have one chapter written by the lawyer telling the story and then the next chapter by the actual murderer who is a serial killer who is a particularly intelligent serial killer who has been on the run for, or he's been doing his thing for years and years and years. And his greatest ambition is to be on the jury in one of his murder trials. So he, you know, he sets up these sort of elaborate murders 
implicating somebody else, but his dream is to sit there on the jury and decide the fate of the Patsy who he has put in in his place. And hence number 13, he was juror number 13 in this one. So one chapter is written by the lawyer and one chapter is written by this very creepy serial killer. And each chapter is only about five pages long. So it is so compelling because you jump um, from one to the other. And then that night that I was reading and I thought, oh, goodness, I can't now stop. Because I can, I can do one more chapter, and then that chapter's so short, you think, oh, well, I'll do one more. Binge reading. We have to get that guy <laughs> because everyone else is doing binge watching. Well, that's actually what this felt like. I, the pace was just extraordinary. And if you enjoy Grisham, if you enjoy Mark Billingham, if you enjoy any sort of thriller, if you're wanting a thriller, if you're thinking, oh, I need something for the weekend, please look out for Steve Cavanaugh's When you talk 13. about 13 and then the seven deaths of Eveline Hardcastle, people are so clever. These exactly. authors are so clever. We'll be back with a few more clever books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking books with Tracy Schwarzer here from Jonathan Ball. Just to give an update, the Hirschlands charity campaign, there's eight minutes left and they're on 2.809 million rand. Uh, they need another 191,000 rand to get to the 3 million mark. If you want to participate in this very exciting initiative, go to charity.com forward slash Hirsch Lions. You can donate on the website. It's the easiest way to do it now with only eight minutes left. And we'll, I'll have one more update just before the end of the show. Now we'll be over to Jonathan Ball Publishers. We've got at least three more really exciting books to get through. I'll, I'll try and get through the three more. If we don't make it all the way, we can save it for another time. Um, the next one that I wanted to chat about was also a novel that I read over the, my holiday period by E.S. Thompson. It's called The Blood. It's historical novel set in London, Victorian London, between the slums, you know, sort of houses piled on top of each other, tiny alleyways, no sanitation, lots of dodgy characters, and this ship that was nicknamed the Blood, which was actually a real 18th century ship that was permanently moored in the middle of the Thames, and it functioned as a hospital, and primarily for people who were coming into London with weird and wonderful diseases from all over the world, and they you know, were obviously keen to advance tropical medicine, but not necessarily keen to have those people in the hospitals in London itself. And one of the doctors on board the Blood, which, as I say, was a a real ship, and it really was a hospital ship in the middle of the Thames, one of the doctors sends off a frantic note to two of his colleagues saying there is something really wrong going on on this ship. And I think I'm in danger. Please hurry. And, of course, once they arrive, he's gone. He's jumped off the ship. He's floating in the Thames in an apparent suicide. And it's the race of these two doctors to try and solve the murder of their colleague, their friend, and to prevent any further deaths 
on board the blood. Really cool. It was it was just a nice setting historically and I felt you know one of those novels that you read when oh, it's a great page turner but you sort of walk away thinking oh wow I, I, I learned a bit there about a piece of history that I didn't know about and obviously incredibly compellingly done so I enjoyed the blood I think we've got time for one more book so I know the blood money book is available in the shop yes so let's talk about blood money by Johan Rath this is locally published um, where my heart lies and I just got my finished copy yesterday, actually, and I had read parts of it in manuscript, but now I'm starting from beginning to end. And it is an absolutely fascinating story, Johann Rath's story. He was an, a recce in South Africa who joined a private security company protecting American engineers in Iraq. So he was a private security contractor. And this is his story of what it's like to essentially be a mercenary in Iraq in 2004. He went across for the first time. So you're talking just after the fall of Saddam Hussein. It's I'm hugely interested in history, military history. I'm interested more in World War One, World War Two. So this was a very interesting period for me. And the the strangeness of the lives of these ex-South African recies who are working in Iraq. And I, they are hugely in demand. There are a huge number of South Africans working in Iraq as security personnel to these companies that are fixing sewerage works and and that sort of thing. And the danger of their life, at, at the back of the book, it's actually, there's a very beautiful dedication to all of the South Africans that, or the private contractors who've died serving these American security companies that hire them. And the list runs to 48 names. It's extraordinary. So, When you think of the change in war from wars being fought by governments, now basically wars being outsourced to private contractors. You can right. call them steward exactly, security yeah. com- companies, but that's really what they are. They, they, but they're uh, not Johan is quite he's, – he's quite keen to sort of differentiate himself from armies for hire back in the day. They're generally defending civilian targets in order for – and they, they, do, they spend a lot of time training these engineers. So you go in – um, as an architect, but you need to learn how to recognize an IED, how to you know, hit the ground when the shells are flying. So they train the civilians and they protect them. So he is quite, he's quite mindful of saying, you know, we're, we're not actually going out there starting wars, but clearly, you know, he's been ambushed several times. He's not he's, a soldier of fortune. He's not a mercenary. No. But it no. is a, it's, 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 it's an army, army function. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Yes, absolutely. And quite how many of our ex South African special forces guys are working there. And just mention the name and one sentence on the last book because it's got a beautiful name. It's yeah. a wonderful book. It's called the Madiba Appreciation Club, a chef's story. And it's only coming out in April. So we've got time to discuss it at a later stage, but it is Brett Ladd's story. And he was the executive chef. At the presidential guest house from 1994 to 2000. So over Mandela's tenure and some of Tabo and Berkey's. So he cooked meals for everybody who visited, the dignitaries who visited. It was you know, from Bob Mugabe to the Queen to Naomi Campbell to it's, and it's just the most charming book. So we can talk about it nearer the time, but I've, I'm just reading the manuscript now, and it is beautiful. So 
that's that's wanted I wanted to mention it because it does sound so great. We actually out of time. Just the last last update. There's two and a half minutes to go for the Hirsch Lions charity campaign. They are sitting on two point nine four six million rand. They short sixty thousand forty fifty five thousand rand. If you want to participate in the next two minutes, go straight to the charity.com forward slash Hirsch Lions. That's H-I-R-S-C-H-L-Y-O-N-S um, page. And you can make a donation directly there. It will come in before the 24 hours are up. To everybody who's been listening, continue reading, keep reading, and good Shabbos.